Hear God's Word from 1 Peter. We'll be reading the first two verses this morning. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Thanks be to God. First impressions are hard to shake. That's why we labor so with so much energy to impress people with the way that we come across when we meet them. We try to define ourselves with something that we want to be identified with, whether it's brands or a certain level of intelligence or humor, or maybe it's a degree or accomplishments. And you can see these desires to be associated with things that we think make us purposeful in things like our social media bios and things like the clothes that we wear, the cars that we drive, the neighborhoods that we choose to live in and the vocabulary that we choose to speak with. So as we begin looking at these verses today, I have to ask you, what are you trying to define yourself by? How do you try to carry yourself? What is it that you want people to see about you? What do you want your first impression to be? Today, as we begin 1 Peter, we see Peter is writing to believers in Asia Minor, and we get two first impressions in this book. First, an impression of Peter, and then second, an impression of those believers. And Peter defines both himself and the Christians to whom he writes by their God. First and foremost, their identity and who they are and what makes them who they are is defined by their God and nothing less. I have recently returned to the social media worlds for nine years, had no presence. Returned to the Twitter sphere this summer. And it is amazing how people try to define themselves in the types of things that they post, the impressions they try to make. And we, we, we take those things hook, line, and sinker and think of people in certain ways based on how they present themselves. But let us, brothers and sisters, not look to what other people think about us. Let us redefine ourselves as Peter defines himself and as he defines these believers as those who are of God. As we look through this, we're going to look at Peter's brief opening. And then we're going to look specifically at how he defines the believers in relationship to the Father and then to the Spirit and then to the Son. A very intentional Trinitarian list there. And then we'll look at that blessing, that benediction at the end. So let's look at the introduction here. Peter opens in normal first century letter fashion by stating his name, the author, and defining himself briefly, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And then he proceeds in normal first century letter fashion to identify who he's writing to. And he says, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. And then he lists some regions in the Asia Minor Peninsula, that is, modern-day Turkey. 
So the sender here is Peter. The recipients are the elect exiles of the dispersion. Peter uses his name, which means rock. And you may remember that Peter is the one who made that proclamation that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus then said on that profession, he will build his church. On that rock, he will build his church. Peter calls himself an apostle. An apostle is someone who is called and sent. In its simplest terms, it means a sent one. But in a special sense, it applies to those who were the apostles of Jesus Christ in particular. It applies to those who witnessed the risen Jesus and were commissioned by him under Jesus' authority, by the Holy Spirit's inspiration, to remember the life of Jesus and to write Scripture. And Peter is one of these. An apostleship is complete. There are no more apostles in that sense because the special revelation of God has been complete in the person of Christ until Christ returns when he will put his enemies under his feet. But Peter says that he is an apostle. That means he was called and he was sent. You may remember that call when Jesus was walking along the Sea of Galilee and saw Peter and Andrew fishing. And Jesus said, come, follow me. And they dropped their nets and they followed. Little did Peter know what he was getting himself into. This was going to change the entire shape of the substance of his life, not just on earth, but for eternity. And he is an apostle of Jesus Christ. An apostle of Jesus Christ. You know, Peter was well known in this ancient world. Everybody knew who the great apostle Peter was. They, he could have tried to identify himself with his own accolades and his own reputation, but he chooses to define himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. He decided not to glory in his reputation. He is first and foremost of Jesus Christ because he knows truly that without Jesus, he would be nothing. He knows that he is an apprehensive, inconsistent, bumbling fool. And we see that throughout the Gospels. You remember his seemingly unfiltered, senseless comments about how he was going to build a tent for Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. You remember how he made that wonderful proclamation of the person of Christ and then Jesus immediately afterward called him Satan because he didn't understand what he had just said. Remember how the so-called rock became that stumbling block of offense. That's Peter. Yet it is exactly these kinds of vessels that Jesus has chosen to use. And for Peter and for the apostles, it is Jesus's authority. It's all authority in heaven and on earth by which he sent them to do the work of gospel proclamation. It's not their authority. So Peter doesn't even try to claim his own authority here. But as we get into the letter, we're going to see how much Peter has grown and matured. And it makes me long for that same growth and maturity in Christ. And we see it in Peter's life to the point that now in his first letter, he's going to take that narrative that we see in the Gospel of Mark, and he's going to instruct these other believers how to apply it to their own lives with richness. And his message to them is this. You are saved by God. No matter your trials, die to yourself and live in Christ. That's the message he gives them. And we see his maturity not only, or in, in, in that he, do, he does not claim any earthly prestige for himself. 
Although some had wanted to sit at Jesus' left hand and right hand in glory, Peter here reserves all glory for God. And so he calls himself an apostle of Jesus Christ. He has no other identity. He has no prestige. He is not puffed up by his business or by his family or by his social influence or by his income or by his church denomination. He belongs to Jesus Christ. And very soon he would himself literally die to self, being crucified upside down for the sake of Christ. Also in verse 1, Peter tells us who he's writing to. So let's look at the recipients in more detail. Here we see the elect exiles of the dispersion. Now there's great debate over whether Peter is writing to literal ethnic Jewish exiles or to those who are metaphorically exiles in a world that is not their home. Both are defensible. But let's say that maybe it had been written to Jews who were removed from their homes under Emperor Claudius because there is evidence in 49 AD that he had expelled people from Rome. Jews from Rome in particular over the instigation of this thing called Christus. And if that is indeed a reference to Christ, that would make much sense that these had been then removed from Rome under Emperor Claudius and were therefore exiles dispersed across Asia Minor. Or it could have been a part of a colonization effort from Rome, out of Rome, across Asia Minor as new developments were being settled. Or it could have been both. But Peter knew of their situation. And in the way that he speaks, it seems that he had probably met many of them during his travels. Before, the, before they were dispersed across this region. And it could have also just been, this could be Peter's metaphor for describing all believers in these regions, Jews and Gentiles who now face the growth of these cities around them based on principles and lies that they don't subscribe to. And they find themselves exiled, ideologically even, in their own cities and practically. Now you may remember Paul was sent to the Gentiles and Peter to the Jews. But the way these regions are divided up, it seems like Peter is writing to those believers in parts of Asia Minor that were not a part of Paul's early missionary work across southern Asia Minor. So it seems that Peter then was sent to those Gentile regions on the northern part of Asia Minor, and Paul had many uh, interactions with those on the southern part. So even if the exiles of the dispersion refers to those Jewish those of Jewish ancestry who faced that historic exile into these regions who had been kicked out of their homes in Rome. And even if these who were in Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia and Bithynia includes the Gentiles, there is still only one source of hope. Whether this is a literal exile or this is a metaphorical journey through this world, there is one source of hope in Peter's message. And it's the connection to God in the covenant of Jesus. There is only one identity, and it's no longer being ethnic Jew. It is being in Jesus. And that is Peter's message to these believers. And they are facing persecution. And this seems to be persecution before Nero's widespread persecution. But one scholar describes their situation like this. Because of their Christian faith, they were being marginalized by their society, alienated in their relationships, and threatened with, if not experiencing, a loss of honor and socioeconomic standing, and possibly worse. Their lives weren't easy because they were Christians. And this is consistent with Peter's testimony 
from the Gospel of Mark. When, when Christ called his disciples, he said, you must die to yourself and take up your cross and follow. And in this letter, we see an extended application of that, of what Christ did himself and what Christ called his disciples to do, to die to self, to lay down your life. So these believers live then not under the authority of this world, Peter's going to get to this later, and we'll look at this in a couple weeks. Chapter 2, verse 11, he, he tells them, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. He's trying to apply to them very specifically what it looks like to be in exile in the very land in which you dwell. Now, what about for you and for me? I mean, we can look at other Christians across the world who live under much greater persecution. But we don't have to live under systematic persecution in order to be exiles. In fact, we need to remind ourselves more often that this world is not our home because we so quickly become friendly to this world. Let's remember that we too are exiles here. And that the guiding ideas of the world around us are in direct conflict with that gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, if you find that you don't really have much conflict with the world, I challenge you to examine how firmly you stand in the gospel. This is a countercultural gospel, one that reminds us often that we are not like this world. And if the lies of the world rest easy in your heart, I challenge you to re-examine where your heart rests. Peter is reminding his hearers, and this is a direct application to us, of that truth that we also find in Hebrews 11, that this whole hall of faith, all these people that were listed from the Old Testament were strangers and exiles on the earth. So are we. So were the believers to whom Peter wrote. We are strangers and exiles on the earth. And as Hebrews 11 verse 16 says, but as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God for he has prepared for them a city. We long for our true home. Our home is heavenly. Our identity is not of this world. So Peter, as he defines himself, he is of Jesus Christ. And as he defines the recipients of his letter, they are of God. Their identity is heavenly, not earthly. They're defined by their relationship to the Father and to the Spirit and to the Son. And so are we. So let's look at how Peter fleshes out who these recipients are. He calls them elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. This is what makes them who they are. Let's look at how they are related and connected to God the Father. Peter tells us they are elect in the Father. Verse 2, to those who are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. You know, it would be a sad thing to be in exile and to not have a homeland. I used to joke when I first moved up to Ohio that I was a southern transplant in a foreign land. 
Now, of course, I have grown over the last eight years to love this place. But imagine being in exile somewhere and not having that homeland, not having that place that is home. For some of us, that home seems to be ripped out of our lives. But Peter's reminding them, you still have an eternal place that is home for you. And it's in your connection to God the Father. They are elect by God. And so their identity rests in God, even as they wander through a land that does not claim them. Now they are chosen by God out of his eternal love for them. And as the Jews were the nation chosen from among the nations, so are the Jewish and Gentile believers in the church chosen from among the world. You can recall last week, last week's sermon and Pastor Wright's explanation of election and how it works for the good of God's people and for his glory. By opening a letter like this, Peter is preparing his readers for more mentions of their identity in Christ, because in chapter 2, verse 9, he calls them a chosen race. And this is a doctrine of hope. But so quickly, it can become a dry or undesirable doctrine, especially when we let our selfish hearts be pitted against it. We want to be in control. And so if God is the one who is in control, that means we have to surrender to Him. It requires humility on our part. But when we humble ourselves before the gracious God, we can exclaim with Paul the joy of the truth of election, just like Paul does in Ephesians 1, when he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself for his grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. I want this doctrine to create in you and me gratitude and joy and peace and assurance and to give comfort when things around us go poorly. When life is really hard. When your plans fall through. That's exactly how Peter uses it here. It's for believers who are facing persecution and he reminds them of their security in their God. And he tells them to stand fast in him. Okay, one of those benefits, I'll call it a benefit of being on the social media things, is that I have encountered this recent viral video of a man on the streets of New York City who is about 60 years old. He grew up in Queens. He got married and he had three kids and he got involved what he called not-too-good business. And that is uh, illegal drug dealing and human, human trafficking. He was rightly found. Uh, he went to jail and he lost his wife and his kids. And he says this in this video interview. I ask him, like, how are you doing now? And he says, as he starts speaking about his trust in God, he says, before Genesis 1-1, God had already chosen those who he chose. I was called in June of 1993. I was in jail. Since 1993, which was 30 years ago, I've screwed up a million times. I've been used of God a million times, but I've screwed up a million times. And I've come to the conclusion after 30 years that truly, truly, God knew who I was. 
and what I was going to do and what I was going to become. He knew I was going to pick up cans one day before it ever happened. That scripture helps me to realize that when I fail, you know, when I don't please or do the things of God, he still loves me. He still cares for me because he chose me in Christ. He seated me at his right hand in heavenly places. I'm seated there right now, whether I deserve it or not. What a beautiful theological treatise from the streets of New York, from a man who gets it, who understands the comfort of this good news that God has securely elected his people and will not let them go. And so Peter tells his recipients, your identity is in God the Father. And it is inseparably tied to God and to his eternal love for them and his foreknowledge of them. And without him, they are nothing but with him. And because of his electing love set on them, nothing can separate them from the love of God in Christ Jesus. That's what makes these believers Christians. And, and Peter moves on and he calls them elect in the sanctification of the spirit. He says, to those who are elect in the sanctification of the Spirit. Peter has emphasized God's initiative through all this. God is the one who called him to be an apostle. God is the one who elected according to his foreknowledge the Christians to whom he writes. So here he is emphasizing the initiating force of the Spirit who breathes life into the dead soul and who applies the cleansing blood of Jesus to the ones who look on Jesus in faith. And then from that new life, he grows a believer in holiness and in Christ-likeness. This is the power of the Spirit at work in his people. And sanctification, that work of becoming more and more like Christ, it is a natural result of God's work when he, when he elects and foreknows and when he justifies and applies by the Spirit to the believers what Christ has done on their behalf. Holiness grows. Sanctification follows. Romans 6.22 puts it this way, but now that you have been set free from sin, that's speaking of justification and of faith, and, and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification, and its end, eternal life. God is growing His people by His Spirit for a destination of eternal life, and it has begun in our lives on this earth. And it involves a conscious dying to self on the part of Christians. How do we grow in sanctification? Well, we get some hints where this word is used throughout the New Testament. It's described as a denial of flesh. Romans 6.19 says, So now present your members, speaking of the members of the body, your hands, your feet, your mouth, Present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. We no longer serve sin with our bodies. 1 Thessalonians 4 says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. God calls us to grow in holiness in the very use of our bodies and how we deny the longings of the flesh and the natural tendencies 
And his spirit breathes that life into us and that faith by which we can grasp on to Christ and grow in holiness. And when we do fail and when we do sin, he reminds us that we are covered in Jesus. And we're going to see in a brief moment how these self-denials, dying to self, are linked directly with what Peter then calls obedience to Jesus. And so Peter reminds them, your identity is tied to the Father and your identity is tied to the Spirit, inseparably tied to the Spirit. And in the giving of the light of life that the Spirit gives to you, because without the Spirit giving you life, you would be dead. And by the Spirit's growth of them in the ways of God, without the Spirit, they are nothing. This world is all about vague spirituality that makes you feel good about yourselves these days. But Peter's reminding these believers that you're not being saved for some vague spirituality, some occasional spiritual thoughts or heightened experience. No, God has loved and foreknown and chosen and saved his people in a concrete sphere, specifically in the covenant of Jesus Christ. And he has saved them with concrete purposes, and that is to make them holy, like Jesus. God is doing something in the salvation, not just leaving us hanging in a vague spirituality. And so let's look now at how Peter defines them as elect in the Son. He says in verse 2, to those who are elect for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. Now that word obedience is a bad word in our culture. Don't obey anybody except your heart. Well, here's the truth. We all obey something. We're all slave to something. You are following something. Something is dictating what you're doing. And if it's your natural, unchecked heart, you're being driven by sin. And if it's the forces of the world around you, you are being driven by sin. And if it is concrete rejection of the gospel for your own reign in your life, you're being driven by sin. But God saves us that we might be driven by something else, that we might obey something so much greater and so much more beautiful than these passions of the flesh. Romans 6.16 says, You are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. This is gracious that God would give us obedience to righteousness, that it might not end in death, but in life. And Romans 1 also talks about this being called, and it leads to the obedience of faith. Obedience of faith. We obey not to get faith, but we obey because of the faith that the Spirit has placed in our lives. We are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. It turns into obedience. And Jesus even says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And so we look back at at what Peter explained in the life of Christ and that constant call to discipleship, to die to self, and it leads then to life in Christ and obedience to Christ. And we see his law, as the psalmist does, not as a burden, but as a means to life. God is calling his people to purpose, and to life, and to hope in our obedience to Christ. And Peter defines them as elect for sprinkling with the blood of Jesus. Peter's about to get to this point as he fleshes out his letter that we are saved by Jesus' wounds. By his wounds you have been healed. You know that line. 
That's found in chapter 2, verse 24. This is the theme of his message. You are saved by the wounds of Jesus Christ. And so he's reminding the, the readers that you are identified by the blood of Jesus. This is the blood of the covenant. And what is it that we have to be healed from, though? What is it that the blood needs to wash us from us? It's our damning sin. It's our sin that condemns us to die. But Peter doesn't identify them that way. Did you notice that he does not mention that they are first and foremost sinners? He calls them belonging to God. That is first and foremost who they are. Hebrews 12 says that we have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, into the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the old covenant. In Mark 14, as Jesus is giving, instituting the Lord's Supper, he says, this is my blood of the covenant. You see it down there on the table. Anticipate coming to it and remembering that it makes you who you are. Peter is not trying to redefine his audience in Old Testament terms. Although it seems like, you know, he, he calls them exiles, like Abraham was in exile, and like Old Testament Israel was exiled in Babylon. And he talks about the sprinkling with blood. He is not telling them to return to that Old Testament way of doing things. He is saying there is a new covenant. This new covenant that was promised in Jeremiah 31, where it says, For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. We are no longer under that old law. We are under grace. We no longer receive God's covenant blessing by doing good that earns the blessing. And we don't receive his covenant blessing by offering sacrifices. We don't have to pour out blood of animals to keep our sins punishment at bay. No, it's been done for us once and for all. And this new covenant has washed away sins effectively. It is the only effective sacrifice that has been made and it has been made in the blood of Jesus. And we're welcomed into all the benefits of that covenant, not by being good people, but by trusting in the one who alone was truly good. We are saved by works, by Jesus' works. And we receive all the benefits of his works by faith. And we are welcomed into that salvation by God's election, his loving foreknowledge of his people, by the Spirit's gift of faith, and by placing that faith in Jesus. And from that then comes a life of obedience. Their identity, just like Peter's, is in Jesus Christ. And it is inseparably tied to him and to his work on their behalf. Without him, they are nothing. Peter closes now with a benediction at the end of verse 2. This too is a typical first century letter uh, element, sender, recipients, and then a brief greeting. And he does give a greeting here. But it is more than just a greeting. It's a benediction. We'll talk about that in just a minute. Peter begins his letter here with a word of peace. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. And you may notice that the very end of this book, he also closes with peace. And it's important for us to remember that these people who are living in a world where there is no peace, they still have peace. 
And it's not from this world. It is from God alone. And Peter is reminding them, you have peace. And it is given to you. And it's not just a wishful thinking. It's not a we wish you a Merry Christmas kind of greeting. This is an authoritative, sure promise of blessing. It's a greeting that comes with authority. It's the apostolic benediction by which the authority of Jesus Christ was given to the apostles. And and through it, he blesses the recipients. It's that same concept of God's blessing that comes with a benediction at the end of every worship service. The blessing in these things doesn't come from, from Peter or from the minister. It comes from the one who has called and sent. The blessing comes from Jesus himself. When Peter says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you, he's not saying this is from me. This is from Jesus. This is from our God, and it is a sure promise. What about grace in particular, though? Grace is a word of blessing. It's not, again, it's not a magic word, but this is a grace that comes from God. Peter and Paul and John all use this in their greetings. Paul says, grace to you and peace. John says, grace, mercy, and peace will be with us. And also in Revelation, John says, grace to you and peace. What is this grace? It's a gift. It's a gift. And and Paul reminds us in Romans 5 that we have access to this grace by being in Jesus. This is not some next level of spirituality. This is what we receive in Jesus Christ. It's God's kindness poured out upon sinners. And by it, he saves us. And by it, he sustains us. And by it, he will carry us to the end. It is gracious of him to do this. In this peace. This peace also is a gift from God. And it will, and it does, end the hostility between man and God. And it will eventually end the hostility between man and man when Christ comes and reigns perfectly on this earth again. And this is that same grace and peace formula that we find in the great benediction in Numbers. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. There's the grace. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you Peace. Peter is reminding us of the character of a God, of, of God as a God who gives grace and peace to his people. It's especially relevant to people who are living under the constant threat of persecution and ostracism. And believe it or not, that's us. The wicked one is always seeking who to devour, and those longings from within are constantly trying to drag us down. We live in a place that is not our home, yet we move forward with grace and peace. How could you find peace living in a land that's not your home, where you didn't choose to go under circumstances that you they don't promote your comfort, but rather where you're constantly wondering whether you'll be treated poorly or ostracized? This is a peace that must come from elsewhere. And this is a peace that comes from God himself. And Peter uniquely adds, may it be multiplied to you. And he doesn't pretend that he's giving this multiplication. This is a multiplication of grace and peace from God and it grows and it grows the more we see it in our lives and God sustains us with grace and peace by the, as the Father and by the Son and by the Spirit. At the end of the book, chapter 5, verse 12, Peter tells us why he's writing this. 
He, he says, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. This grace of God is the foundation of how we move forward in life this week. And we remember that we have been foreknown from eternity past. That we are being grown in sanctification by the Spirit who gave us that life and that faith. And we are growing in our obedience to Christ because we have been sprinkled by His blood. This grace and peace comes to all who are saved. And if you trust in Christ then you will go from this place this morning and into every day with this blessing from your God. You'll have grace in times of need. You'll have grace in light of the fact that you are a sinner who deserves to die for it. And you will find ultimate peace with your God, even as we remain exiles in this place. Not a day goes by without grace and peace multiplied to you from God himself. In your day-to-day graces, are just like your identity. They are not from this world in which we are exiles. They are rooted in God who foreknew you. They are rooted in the Spirit who breathes life into dead people. And they are rooted in Jesus whose blood cleanses you to live in holiness. This is our identity. This is who we are in Christ, first and foremost. Remember, you are not defined by your sin. Not in God's eyes. Not if you've been sprinkled with the blood of Jesus, that new covenant that washes away sins and gives you life. Press on, dear exiles and sojourners. Stand firm in this grace from God. It has made you all that you are and will carry us home. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, gracious God, We praise you for the salvation that you have given us, that we are saved in the Trinity, that from eternity past you have known your people and have worked salvation for us. We thank you for your spirit who is with us, and we thank you for Jesus Christ, by whom we have grace and peace. Would we see ourselves as nothing less than those who are of Jesus Christ? It's in his name we pray. Amen.